a workshop or a meeting is a designed experience and it's people interacting with people it's behaviors it's it's moving through a flow to get to an end process this is skilled by design a podcast for experienced designers and product managers that want to deliberately grow their skills and become better humans in the process I'm your host, Tommy Bay, and today I'm talking with Jared Spool. I started paying attention to Jared back in 2015. The term UX was just starting to get popular, but Jared had been talking about experience design for years. I read his articles and listened to his presentations and his podcasts. He's quite prolific. I've had the good fortune to hear Jared speak in person on three separate occasions, and he always teaches me something new. If there's anyone out there that lives and breathes UX, it's this man right here. Jared, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me on this. This is lovely. I'm honored to, to be on your podcast and flattered that you asked. Well, thank you. I, I And I feel humbled and I'm just thrilled. So something that's important for people to know about you is that you started a UX school. You might be the only person who has started a UX school. I, I know that there are other UX programs as part of universities, boot camps, but are you the only school? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of other things that we could call a school or they call a school. Ours is, is unique in its formation in that it's, it's really geared towards taking as many people as we can to to bring them into the field with the skills necessary to be what we call industry ready, to be able to, to start at a job and be contributing. So many hiring managers have told me that they're reluctant to hire people right out of school because they're not done with their training. So we, we tried to build a program where you wouldn't just learn the essentials, but you'd actually have experience and and do the work and and come in and know what questions to ask and know how to settle in and 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 roll up your sleeves and get work almost immediately and for the most part from our graduates the reports all are that we succeeded that that our graduates are able to come in and make a big difference in the organizations from the moment they get there and really help design take a foothold in in the organizations that they become a part of. That's amazing. So how many graduating classes have you had? When did you start? We started in 2016 and and we ended up we had we had just finished up a class right before the the pandemic hit and we thought okay, we'll just we'll just wait until the pandemic passes. You know, how long is it going to be, right? 6 weeks, 8 weeks. <laughs> What's it going to be? And here we are 2 years later and we we still have the the program shut down as we wait for, you know, the, the, the challenge that we have is that it's an in-person program. And we, we could have tried to figure out how to do an online program, but so much of the value of the program is in actually working with the instructors every day. The instructors and the students work together on real projects. The instructors playing project leads initially and eventually sort of fall into a coach and advisor role as time goes on and and the students are are doing work from the time they get there and they're working in teams and and when you're just learning 
you really need that to see what other people are doing. You need to be able to look over their shoulders. You need to be able to check in on their work. And that's just so hard to do remotely. So we didn't, we didn't want to dilute the quality of the program by making it online. So, so we, we resisted that. We're paying a small price right now, but I think in the long run, it'll, it'll play out because as soon as everybody's vaccinated and the hospital situations are, are set and we all know how to, how to sort of occupy spaces together and we can do all the things that, that are required to do that, we can, we can reopen the program and have ourselves. We want to actually start with two cohorts in the first year, one with 12 students, one with 24 students. But our goal is within a year or two to have successive cohorts that are 36 students big, multiple cohorts running at a time. And we want to get onto a, a, a schedule where we're graduating new students every six to eight weeks. So that hiring managers, you know, it's a two-year program. So just rolling program. So the hiring managers don't have to wait. You know, one of the things that when we were interviewing the hiring managers about hiring folks out of various academic schools, one of the things they told us was that they were very frustrated that you could only hire students in the spring and that there were so few students coming out of academic programs that you really had to start your recruiting six months in advance. And so you're, you're sort of courting these students for six months and, and there are so few of them that there's a good chance they won't come your way. And the big companies sort of snatch up all the, all the ones that, that, you know, with these uh, promises of big salaries and whatnot. So they were very frustrated that, that they really have no chance of, of hiring students that way. So, so when we were building the program, we always built it with this idea that you could start it at any time, you could end at any time, it goes for 96 weeks. And in that 96 week period, the students build up not just skills, but they also do working projects that are for organizations and they have to produce quality work and get critique and, and they can put these things on their portfolio and every project is different. So every portfolio is different. And so it yields a, a more round, more qualified new designer. And to have those available every six to eight weeks means as soon as a position opens up, they can be talking to students about, about filling it and get their jobs. All of our students so far have had jobs within uh, six weeks of graduating. Um, yeah, awesome. it's, it's been fantastic. So we've been very happy with it. And I think the, the, the curriculum we came up with is excellent. The, the, certainly the, the managers who've hired the students have told us that, that they're really impressed with what these students can do when they get there. I'm sure that's awesome. And that kind of segues into the, the whole skills conversation. As you know, I'm very interested in skills in general. We swapped some messages back and forth and you brought up some really interesting points about the you know differences between skills and traits or, or attributes that the designers have. But you mentioned that you went through quite a process determining the UX skills that you would focus on in your school. What, I mean, where did you even start? And, and can you tell me a little bit about that, that journey through figuring out, you know, where to focus? Well, we had done, we had been doing a lot of work leading up to the school. We'd been doing a lot of work sort of researching into what do 
organizations need from the designers and the researchers mm -hmm. and the UX professionals that they have. We had learned that there was this sort of trend towards specialization that was going on for a while where, you know, t organizations, we ran into organizations that were trying to, to segregate their the people by sort of this major skill categories. This group of people would be information architects. This group of people would be UX researchers. Mm -hmm. This group of people would be interaction designers. And what we were seeing in that is that it, it really, it created real resource constraints that when you have someone who, who's a, a visual designer, but they can't do research, they can't do content strategy, and they can't do interaction design, and, and, and they can't do information architecture, they basically have to sort of wait until there's visual design work to do. And, and, there's, and there's nobody sort of overseeing the continuity between this work. And it's, you know, the, it's hard to point at some element of a design and say, that's only information architecture, or that's only visual design, right? Yeah. You know, the visual design communicates hierarchy, it communicates information, which is what information architecture does, which is what the content strategy contributes to, which is interacted on by the interaction design, mm -hmm. uh, which is informed by the user research. So what we, what we realized early on was that segregating people by skills didn't work and that in fact, the most effective teams we could find were teams where people were able to do all these different things. And, when, and, and this is what people sort of refer to as a generalist, is, is being able to do these things. But the reality is that a generalist is someone whose skills are somewhat equal across the, the spectrum versus a specialist if you think of specialists in the medical term, so you think of a specialist like uh, an oncologist or a, a cardiologist or an mm -hmm. obstetrician, right? The thing about all these folks is that they all have to go to medical school. They all have to learn how to be a doctor, right? So they all start as generalists, but then they spend most of their time in a particular area doing a particular type of work. So they become very specialized in that part of work, but they never lose their general knowledge of medicine. In fact, in order to keep their license, they have to continue to go back and, and renew that general knowledge of medicine, right? In order to, in the United States at least, in order to remain being a doctor, you have to, you have to continue to learn and practice how to deliver babies, even if you're a cardiologist and that's not what cardiologists do. But you know, you might be the only doctor on the airplane when the baby comes and, and you're the doctor who's gonna deliver that baby and you have to be good at that. And so this is the thing that, that, that doctors do is that they become generalists first then they become specialists. But in the UX world, that wasn't what was happening. What was happening was people would, weren't learning to be generalists first and therefore had this broad base to build on. They were just learning one thing. They were just learning information architecture. They were just learning visual design. And then they were like, well, I'm a visual designer, hire me. And what we found was that the hiring managers soon became resistant to this because these people were less useful. Unless you have a backlog of visual design work, you get to moments where this person doesn't have anything to do and they're not useful anywhere else in the project.
And so, so what we found was that, that, that teams that have had people who had a broad swath of skills who could switch, maybe they weren't awesome at visual design, but they were good enough for the project, particularly if there were design guidelines and standards and, and templates to work with and, and other things, they could, they could do a decent job on the visual design of the project. They could do a decent job on the information architecture. They could do a decent job on the research. And mm -hmm. all of these things turned out to be something that, that we could work with. So, so we, we created a curriculum that, that where we looked at all of the core skills. So the core skills being visual design, information architecture, interaction design, user research. We include in that list, something called editing and curation. We include copywriting and content strategy. We, we have all these different skills that are basically there to, to teach you the core of what a UX professional does, all the things that manipulate the design. And then, we have a set of what some folks refer to as soft skills, but we, we stopped using that phrase because you know soft skills are actually quite hard. So, so we, we, we call them power skills. And the power skills are the things you need to sort of interact in a, in a team productively. So those are skills such as facilitating and communicating design and critique and prototyping and sketching. And then, and then we have a bunch of skills that we, we chose that are sort of trade skills. They're, they're skills that you need in order to work on design teams effectively, like uh, measurement and analytics and presentation and facilitation or what we call facilitated leadership and uh, leadership in general, and then software design practices so you understand how software is built and and design process management so you understand how design processes work and there's a set of skills around understanding the business components of ux and so there's there's 30 of these different courses that the students take over their 96 weeks and and then they also do what we call residencies which are sort of like internships except they're they're shorter they're really intended to just get a taste of what it's like to be with a team in their environment because they've already been doing teamwork with corporate teams throughout their, they do five projects with corporate teams throughout the two years. So they don't need to, to a, a lot of schools use internships to basically give you just a little bit extra in your portfolio that you can call yours. It's not classwork, but mm -hmm. our students already have that before they start their residencies. So really what we want them to do in the residency is to shadow the team and really get to understand what does somebody do every day and how is that different? And then they're supposed to do multiple residencies mm -hmm. at the end of the program so that they can get a real sense as to what, what the different ways teams work turn out to be. Does all that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So uh, so you've got UX skills are made up of power skills, trade skills. And, and, and the core skills. And the, and the core skills. Okay. Yeah. Or yeah. Calculation of skills. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting how a lot of people 
who spend time thinking about soft skills end up coming up with a new name, which I've heard. Yeah, all part of it is that soft skills make it makes it sound like it's it's this sort of wishy-washy thing when in fact the, those those power skills are the ones that actually deliver the power to the work right yeah. if i yeah. can't receive and give critique my work is going to be much less powerful yeah if i can't stand in front of a team and tell the stories of who our users are and how this design will meet their needs my work's not going to have the power it should have so so power skills seem to be a more apt phrase yeah i like that so of of all these skills if i were to ask you which is the unsung hero of of the ux skills which one might you choose well the one the students consistently tell us right so so it's it's less my choice and more though I like it, uh, more what we hear from the students. So, you know, we talk to our students after they graduate and we ask them questions like, so what did we teach you that actually turned out to be surprisingly beneficial? Mm -hmm. And the one that keeps getting the answer to that is facilitated leadership. This is, this is the ability to, to control a group of people in a decision-making process Control sounds nefarious, but it really is, you know, as, as any professional knows, you, you get a bunch of really smart people in a room and you're herding cats. And it's, it's, you know, keeping the team focused, moving towards an objective in a time frame in order to, to get to an outcome that everyone's going to walk away thinking, wow, that was a really good use of my time and I'm really happy with where we got to, is a real set of skills. And, you know, you use facilitated leadership from everything from running a status meeting or a stand-up to creating multidisciplinary workshops where you're, you're getting all these different people to do tabletop exercises or various workshop activities to work through a design or, or work through scenario, create a journey maps, whatever it is. And having a toolbox, particularly people who have strong opinions, people who tend to be quiet in meetings and, and don't share their opinions for whatever reason, they're intimidated, they, they just need time to process. Other people are, are sort of filling the void or filling the silence and, and they just don't get a chance. These are skills that turn out to pay off and, and they're not specific to any aspect of design, right? We could be talking about a session where you're doing crazy eights and the whole idea is to, to come up with mock-up designs. But the idea behind something like the crazy eights technique is to allow people who don't normally draw designs to be equal in their contribution with people who spend all day conjuring up new designs and mm -hmm. let those voices come out, let, let, let them be heard. Helping the marginalized people in the room really get a voice on issues that are important to them and not be dictated to by those who, who want to sort of keep to a norm that, that, that continues to marginalize those folks. So these are the types of skills that you learn in, in these types of sessions. And, and you know, the way that our, our curriculum is set up is that there's a, there's a course and you take a course and, and we have an industry expert come in and teach 
the skills. But then after that expert leaves, our instructors are what we call facilitators. They work with the students to practice those skills. And a skill like facilitated leadership, the students will practice multiple times before they graduate, six, seven, eight times. They'll run workshops or something in their work planned. And then there's all sorts of ad hoc stuff that pops up where it's like, you know, there are three of them that are working on this part of a design for a project. And it's like, okay, who's going to run this meeting? Who's going to take notes? Who's going to make sure that everybody gets their thoughts out? How do we, you know, how do we keep the dynamics equal and contributory and, and, and all that? So those, so the students really practice it. And apparently this is, every single student told us that during their residency, now remember a residency is a six week thing you're, you, where you're basically there to just shadow a team. But every student has told us that at some point during their residency, the, the, the team was stuck that they were with doing something and they just naturally without thinking about it kicked in their facilitation skills and took over the meeting and <laughs> guided the team to a successful outcome and everybody just looked around and said oh my gosh right that's just incredible and that's that's what we were aiming for is, and we didn't, we didn't set it out that it was going to happen in the residencies, but when they all came back and told us, this is something that happened. It's like, oh, I can run a workshop like that. Let me do that. I've done that. I've done that four times already. I'm happy to run this workshop with you. Yeah, that's really cool. So for people listening, um, how do I know if I am terrible at this, at this point? Like, what are some of the maybe anti-indicators? Probably, probably, right? Uh, um, I mean, how, how do I know? We can always get better. Uh, a colleague of mine is very fond of saying that the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. <laughs> and so I've often felt that he could improve a little by not saying it as often as he does. <laughs> uh, he does remind me of this quite frequently. The way that we assess our students is through a set of competencies. So this is true for any course, that there's usually somewhere between three and eight competencies for a given course. And in those competencies, they're sort of like merit badges. The way that they work is that you can, you, there, there's a list of things that you have to demonstrate to the facilitators that you can do. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you demonstrate it by doing them right? You run a session, you, you organize, you plan a session. And the, the goal of, of the competencies is, is you demonstrate that you've done these things. And when you've done these things that you can then from there go and, and get, get that checked off, right? So you think of it like scouting merit badges where, you know, to get the astronomy badge, there's a list of things you have to do. And if you do out these and the scout master or parent basically shows you all of that, then you pass, right? So for facilitated leadership, there's three of them. So the first one is almost always in our, in our curriculum, the first one is always a deconstruction task. And by a deconstruction task, what we mean is you have to attend, in this case, you have to attend a meeting or a workshop and you have to take it apart. You have to figure out what did the person who ran this meeting do? What worked well, what didn't work well? Why did they do all the things? So this allows us to develop a vocabulary about 
this. So you have to learn the vocabulary of meetings, right? You have to learn what a moderator does. You have to learn what a recorder does. You have to understand things like wait time, which is the time you wait after you ask a question to, to make sure that you, you give some space in the room for people to, to contribute. You have to understand how to balance the conversation, when to call on somebody versus when to let people just shout things out. So these are, these are all types of, of things that you have to do. The second uh, thing is you actually have to run a meeting, right? It can be a staff meeting. It can be you know a meeting with an agenda usually. Uh, it can be some sort of update meeting. One of the things we talk about are the different types of meetings. So what are different types of meetings and, and what are their purposes and, and how do you decide which type of meeting you're going to have? And then the, the third competency is that you have to facilitate collaborative activities. We require to get your, uh, to pass the course, you have to do two or more. And so there are all sorts of different activities that you can run, things like a, a kickoff meeting or an affinity diagramming session or a road mapping session or, you know, a design studio. There's all sorts of different activities. It doesn't matter which one you do, but you have to do at least two of them to pass the course. And so the goal is to, to, to do that. And we integrate this with the project work. So there's always these things that are needed to get projects to move forward. You're working on team projects. So this is a pretty straightforward thing to, to make happen. That's how we do it. So if I wanted to assess myself, you would say I should start by observing a meeting and then deconstructing it to, yeah. to try to understand the makeup of the whole thing. Yeah, self-assessment on anything is really hard, right? So it's, it's usually better to, to team up with folks and, and form a little critique club. And so you would, you would run a meeting and I would, you know, afterwards we'd have a little post-mortem and, and I'd tell you what things I thought you did really well and what things that, that you might want to think about doing better and why I think that. We'd have a back and forth about that. And then I'd get up and do something and we'd repeat that process. And uh, a lot of what we do is in the school is, is we, we're sort of based on this idea of watch one, do one, teach one. So the students will watch one of our facilitators do something and then they'll do it themselves and then they'll try to teach it to someone else. And, and when we have multiple cohorts, this works out even better because they can be the ones who teach it to the, the cohorts that started more recently than they did. So they're sort of young, younger people in the program, though age is really not a factor. We have people of all ages in our programs. I see my kids do that all the time. Yeah, exactly. One, one will learn some kind of skill and they'll end up, you know, trying to, to teach it to the others. And it's, yeah, it's amazing in the teaching. How yeah, much you, you, learn. you learn a ton every time you sit down to teach things. So, so this, this, this is a, a key set of skills. Yeah, that is one of those that we, we don't talk about quite as often. The, the facilitating meetings, facilitated leadership. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yet our students tell us that this was the thing that helped propel them the most in their work. Because, because we don't talk about it very often. So many people are bad at it. I mean, how many, yeah. 
how many horrible meetings have you been in? Yeah. And meetings that don't have agendas, meetings that don't seem to have a point, that really don't have anybody leading them, that nobody's taking notes, that no one's recording what the action items are, you know, and, and yet this is what we do all day. So, so how does this work? Right. How, how might we use our design skills? Cause it's a designed experience. This is one of the things that we teach our students is that, is that a workshop or a meeting is a designed experience and it's people interacting with people, it's behaviors, it's, it's moving through a flow to get to an end process. And how do you design it? How do you iterate over it? How do you refine it? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that when you were talking about going and interviewing your students after they've been out of the program for a while. And the concept of, you know, doing UX on a UX school is, is, is pretty great. And thinking about taking our skills through a UX process or taking the, the experiences of our everyday and, and putting them through the process. Right. Helping them to improve. Exactly. To wrap up. So facilitated leadership, if you could give one piece of advice for how to go and improve our facilitated leadership, what, what would it be? Well, that's a good question. Hmm. Well, I would start, frankly, because it was an eye opener for me with reading Kevin Hoffman's book on the subject. I want to make sure I get the title right because I just think of it as Kevin Hoffman's book. Meeting design, of course. Why would I not know that? Uh, uh, meeting design for managers, makers, and everyone. This is an absolutely fantastic book published by Rosenfeld Media. And it is, it is such a beautiful thing. So Kevin came in. He's our industry expert for our meeting design he's you know first thing he does is basically walk through what job everybody has in a meeting and everybody's got a job but we don't ever talk about that someone's running the meeting someone should be recording the meeting someone should be playing a role of a of a timekeeper to make sure that everything that we plan to do in the meeting gets done mm -hmm. right bringing agendas, who's, who's putting the agenda together, what does it say, how does it work? All of these things are designed experiences. And when you uh, learn to master these tools, you can, you can get through amazing amounts of, of things very quickly. Makes sense. I'll get the, the link to the book and, and include it here. Yeah. Uh, good homework. Jared, thank you so much. And where, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Well, right now I'm, I'm in my, my office, but <laughs> that's not that easy to find if you're not in the house. The, the, the easiest place to find me is, is either on uh, Twitter or in our Leaders of Awesomeness community, which you can post a link to, or on LinkedIn. I'm in all those places. I'm pretty easy to find. At least Sounds good. people seem to be able to find me pretty quickly. Thank you, Jared. This has been awesome. Thank you. And thanks to you listening out there for joining us. We'll see you next time on Skilled by Design. Skilled by Design.